Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk to musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission. On today's show, I'm speaking with Harry Bollock and Tony Russell, authors of the new book, Fiddle Tunes from Mississippi, Commercial and Informal Recordings from 1920 to 2018, which is published by the University Press of Mississippi. Um, well, let me start off the show by asking each each of you to introduce yourselves and if you'll just give our listeners a, a short overview of, of who you are and 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 what you do in regards to this conversation. I come to this as a fiddle player first and foremost. I've been doing that about 40 years. I was born in Mississippi in the Delta in Greenwood, but only lived in the state for a very short time. Um, but a family there and have been visiting my entire life uh, and have spent the last 10 years making many extra trips to do research for these two books. My profession was graphic design and illustration, so it's totally unrelated, except that I've always been fascinated by music and have worked to do music packaging whenever I could. Um, I have been amused to become an author because I never saw that coming. The first book kind of decided that I needed to write it because it had been sitting waiting since the 40s and never happened, and I couldn't stand that. And the second one comes just because I don't know when to stop. What um, about you, Tony? Tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and, 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 and your role in, in this conversation. Okay, I'm Tony Russell, and I live in London, England, which uh, you might think was a disadvantage uh, writing about Mississippi music, although I have sometimes found it to be the opposite in that people that I visited and interviewed could not really believe that somebody had come several thousand miles to talk about some recordings their family had made 50 years ago. Um, so I came with a, a sort of a large penumbra of imp improbability. And um, so I've been writing about old time music, um, most of my adult life. Uh, I had a magazine for many years called Old Time Music, published in, in England, uh, but widely, um, quite widely available in, in, in the, the USA as well. And uh, I've written several books, including a, a discography of the whole shooting match, uh, all the recordings made um, from the early 20s up to World War II that can even remotely be called country music. So, um, those such as they are, are my credentials. Well, since you are uh, known as a music historian with a great knowledge of country music, I want to jump off there to ask you, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the terminology, can you talk a little bit about what old time music is um, and, and maybe how that, that terminology is also used with traditional music or string bands? Yes, there's some fuzziness about whether you call it old time or traditional. Um, it's difficult because it's nothing like anything 
much that goes by the name of country music nowadays. Now, there are some survivals and revivals, but on the whole, <clears throat> this is not anything like Luke Bryan. And um, <clears throat> it's... The, the, the quirk about the history is that this stuff got recorded in a way that's, that distorts it. Because this was just community music, family music, domestic and small town community music. Uh, people got together to play music for themselves and for local functions. Somebody would open a store or there'd be a school breaking, uh, there'd be a picnic. And, you know, musicians would come along and play fiddles and guitars and banjos. And that had been going on since, who can say, certainly the mid-19th century, if not earlier. And uh, then the record industry weighs in in the early to mid-1920s and decides that it can exploit this music and turns it into uh, what they actually market as old-time music. I think we... I don't know if we can credit the record business with inventing the term, but it certainly promoted it heavily. Um, and, um, and at that point, we begin to sort of harden into a definition that it's fiddle tunes, it's string band music, it's songs with string band accompaniment or with just guitar accompaniment. It actually covers all an enormous range of things. One of the the problems when I was um, doing the discography I referred to is that so much minstrel banjo players, um, small town uh, string orchestras, um, yodelers, I mean, there's all these people crowding into one room that's got old time musicians over the doorway. And um, it's sometimes difficult to see any kind of coherence about this extraordinary gathering and that's in a way what i think is the fascination that all these things were at one time moving around like 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 organisms in a in a, in a solution you know um bumping against each other creating other organizations organisms and um just a soup if you like of of musical creativity well, that's one of the things I want to talk to you guys about a little later in our conversation that I find so fascinating about the book that you really do explore the both the commercial and the informal recording. So kind of echoing what you're saying, Tony, you know, looking at um, the commercialization of that, the recording of that. But then, you know, these tunes that you guys were able to locate and find and get passed on and, you know, fiddlers and, and music like this that is 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 not known very well, um, is obscure. So uh, before we dive into that, um, Harry, I want to ask you, for those who may not familiar be familiar with what we're going to refer to as fiddle tunes, can you tell us a little bit about what, what we mean uh, when we're talking about fiddle tunes and specifically Mississippi fiddle tunes? When I encounter someone who's new to this and they go, what do you do? I, I'm, I usually say square dance tunes because that communicates pretty quickly what we base the music on these days. Tony gave you a good background for this vernacular music in earlier periods. In my lifetime, it's in revival in most cases, certainly in Mississippi. Um, the last living master fiddlers basically passed away in the 80s. And there's very little, if any, direct musical descendants from them either family or people that studied with them that I'm aware of. I mean, one or two. Um, 
So what we have is a different social context for the revival of this music in Mississippi and particularly Mississippi and certainly elsewhere. Um, so the basic form is eight bars, eight measures of music that gets repeated. And then you have another eight bars of music, an A part and a B part. And they are repeated one after the other in order until the dancers get tired. In Mississippi, that format is honored by the breach of it. Uh, I, I once tried to do a square dance playing only Mississippi tunes and I scanning the entire repertoire, I barely got through the evening. Now there's an abundance of Mississippi tunes, but many of them tend to be asymmetrical, not eight measures. They tend to have some melodic inspiration and they follow it until it's done either sooner or later, and then they repeat that. Um, and I love that. that, that maps to the way I play, maps to the way I, my brain works, but it, uh, it's a little more difficult to follow. Now, we were talking about the social context and I wandered off on a tangent, forgive me. Um, these days in revival, uh, tunes predominate, there's some singing, but it's a very small part of what you encounter at festivals. Um, we're all tune collectors of sorts. And whereas back in the twenties, a master fiddler might know a hundred tunes and be perfectly fine with that repertoire. It's easily a thousand now and a, and a good nodding and acquaintance with another thousand roughly. Um, we have hard drives full of tunes. We have great access, uh, YouTube and other places. And so we are all speaking, learning to speak these dialects of different states or of the generic revival fiddling. And the, the beauty of the revival style is that the entire country plays it and it's kind of a common ground. So we go to these festivals like the big one in Clifftop, West Virginia, where I've heard as many as 5,000 people came over the course of the week and almost all of them were players. So it's the big community gathering for the country. It's, and, and I think the core of it is it just, it gives us in our own towns and our own states and, and in the entire country, it gives us a place to come together and do one thing, no matter what our political persuasions are, uh, sexual persuasions, any of the things that separate us in the rest of the country, we don't care. All we care about is what key are we in and when do we eat? Clifftop is such a, such a mecca in some ways for this particular type of music. So I'm interested to talk a little bit about, and I want to ask you how it differentiates itself from other parts of the country, but um, let's talk a little bit about these communities of fiddlers and these, these gatherings, because, you know, like you said, Clifftop is one of those, but, you know, there's particularly in Mississippi, like the Mississippi State Fair, and you talk in your book about fiddling contests in Kosciuszko and Newton County and Greenwood and Winona and, and, and all over the place. And then, you know, the more contemporary ones, if people have heard of Great Big Game Potatoes and other gatherings around the state. So, Harry, can you just talk about kind of not just the importance of those gatherings, but um, you know, how they've evolved over time and, and, and your kind of observations of those as a community gathering place to share music and meet each other. I've personally been to the Yam Taters one many times. Um, the rest, my experience with the others is 
mostly newspaper accounts or video that mm -hmm. people, families have shared with me of the state contest usually. So that's my filter. Um, the first observation is that in the biggest, most popular time of this music that I can document in terms of attendance would have been around 1916 through 1920 in Kosciuszko. Uh, the fiddle contest there had hundreds of fiddlers attending. That is a big number to me as someone who's been to Yam Taters where there might be, well, the, the year I placed, there were six in the fiddle in the senior division of the fiddle contest and then younger fiddlers mostly tim avalon's students uh, so maybe there were 20 of us um, mm. that number alone is indicative of the changing social context and the um, the audience and the participants um, this is definitely a small part small potatoes shall we say it yeah potatoes <laughs> um, where it used to be music community music, the music. Pre-radio, it really was the music. That and the town brass band or you know any vaudeville band kind of thing coming through, minstrel shows blowing through. Um, so the, the context has totally changed just as the country's changed. Remember that in the 20s in Mississippi, everybody basically, was a farmer. That doesn't mean they were making a living selling food. That means they grew food for themselves, subsistence farming. Mm. Um, so their educational background and access to it, the distance they would have traveled from home, the number of people they knew would be very different than the globe-trotting folks that uh, play this music now. Contests are by definition competitive, um, and I, but we don't really know what the criteria were for winning in the teens and 20s. Um, in other places, I think Tony may have written about this, but it, you know, there was rigged contests um, because prize money was involved. There were local favorites winning the applause-o-meter style of uh, contest and sometimes it'd be you know judges with blindfolds on so they wouldn't see their friends going oh that one plays better than another it, it it's totally varied for what that was actually about but it was competitive and you know um gave you bragging rights if nothing else the Kosciuszko contests uh, you would win things like a bag of flour or a pocket knife or a set of overalls um mississippi has never been an extremely wealthy state uh, so the prizes were quite modest. Hi, I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app.
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative Mississippians. Today, I'm speaking with Harry Bollock and Tony Russell, who are talking with me about their new book, Fiddle Tunes from Mississippi, Commercial and Informal Recordings from 1920 to 2018, and the deep tradition of Mississippi old-time string band music. Um, So, Tony, I wanted to ask you, you um, live outside the country and you've done a lot of work uh, recording Mississippi tunes. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how... um, how those you have come in contact with um, the reception of uh, Mississippi fiddle tunes or the um, knowledge of Mississippi fiddle tunes from people that live outside the state. Um, Have you had any, uh, what are your interesting interactions about this kind of specific topic uh, with people who may have never set foot in Mississippi? Well, for a long time, I think Mississippi fiddle tunes were a poor relation as harry has implied there's a lot of interest in tunes from north carolina and west virginia and kentucky and mississippi just didn't seem to interest people um fiddlers in particular and um in partly it was because much less recording had been done in the old days and very little since the old days except the Library of Congress recordings that Harry has written about in his other book, but those were not exactly widely disseminated. So um, there was this sort of, I wouldn't say ignorance, but a kind of puzzlement about the music, which is to some extent um, an accurate echo of the music itself, because as Harry has implied, it's puzzling music. Um, I think what has attracted me to it always has been that much more than any other fiddle, uh, regional fiddling tradition in the USA that I know of, you hear the blues in Mississippi fiddling. You hear it not in a straightforward way in which people are playing blues, and often when they play things called blues, they aren't blues. They, um, Hoyt Ming talked to me about that. He said once, a fiddler from Ackerman, Mississippi, he uh, he said they just used to call it any tune that had some sort of slightly odd quality to it. They would call it a blues, whether it was a 12-bar blues or not. It was just a commercial stamp you put on it. Uh, but there's something, the irregularity, the puckishness of, of the melodies, um, that just seems to me to be fascinatingly steeped in, in African-American music, but without any... Not in any obvious way, because the African-American recordings uh, that were made in Mississippi back in the day are also puzzling in a different way, in that they are very heavily conventional blues, and you don't get a clear impression of them being a purely or primarily African-American tradition. Well, um, I'm curious to hear uh, from both of you, because you both have experience in this uh, song collection, if you will, or or these, um, you know, collecting these informal tunes. 
Um, and I'm just curious what your experience was in tracking down children and grandchildren. Um, and in some cases, I think for both of you, discovering new recordings that you had never heard or have never really been heard outside of maybe a certain social or, or familiar circle. So what was the what was the process like? How did you go about that? And what was what was the experience? Tony, you talked about that a little bit, but if either one of you want to expand on that, I'd be so interested to hear. I'll jump in. Um, Starting way later than Tony, I have the advantage of the internet. And from way up here in New York, where I live, I was able to track down. I'm getting to be fairly good at being a detective and something yet another career I never thought I would be having. Um, Obits, online obits, ancestry, findagrave.com blanket, you know, address things where that the names are right, the addresses are about right, send out 40 letters, see if anybody bites. Um, That's kind of obvious. We all kind of know how that works these days. And I've had some lovely things like finding Hoyt um, Ming's cousin, Pearl Burdine's granddaughter, who had photos of Pearl Burdine. Um, there are no recordings, a total mystery fiddler, but it, it's shedding some tiny light on that, the, the oddest of all the Mississippi and the most enchanting of all Mississippi fiddle records, the Indian war whoop. Online, I have done far better using tactics, much like uh, Tony did or Gus Mead. Uh, for example, um, I had known about this fiddler, Jabe Dillon, through my record collector friends. There was one known 78 and I think two 45s, two copies of the same 45. Uh, they share tunes, so we're talking a grand total of four, four tunes. One of them's a gospel song, so three tunes, all masterful, all unknown as to the larger community. And we didn't know where he was from. And we weren't absolutely certain that he was, um, which side of the race line he was on, rather thick accent. Um, my friend, Pat Conti, a few years after later, after he introduced me to the recordings, found a newspaper clipping where it talked about Jabe Dillon winning a contest in Louisiana. 20 miles from his home in Wathall County, Mississippi. Kaching, I now know something. I was in Mississippi doing one of my field trips. All my appointments for the day fell through. I thought, I'm in Jackson. Where's Wathall County? I'm not great on geography. So I looked it up. How far is it? What's the county seat? Tylertown, two, two and a half hours. Okay, down and back. I know what I'm doing today. I drive to. Tyler Town, pull into a small community, look around. There's a big building. It's got the Greek columns. Looks kind of like somebody there, there would know something. Turns out it was a county courthouse. I walk in. There's a clerk that's finishing up a modest amount of business, so I don't have to wait in line. I walk over. I go, hi there. I got a weird question for you. You know any Dillons? I'm looking for descendants or people that know about Jabe Dillon, the fiddler. Yes, 
go walk three doors down and talk to Peggy Dillon Hilburn, our tax assessor. She might know something. She wonderful lady, very friendly. Gave me a thumbnail sketch of the family genealogy. Uh, she had married into the family. A um, a map of town showing me where the tombstone was so I could get birth and death dates and circled where the granddaughter's used car dealership was located. So I drove by the tombstone, took note of the dates and unannounced drove over to the used car dealership. Um, an upright but modest business on the side of the highway. I walk in blinded by the bla bl blasting Mississippi sunlight into a darkened room and I see a couple of obviously large male shapes in silhouette and uh, a hairdo on the right that uh, was probably not male. And uh, I, I said, hi, I'm looking for Dee McCullough. Um, Peggy over at the tax assessor's office sent me dead silence. Um, I realized that was an awkward introduction, and I explained that, yes, I was looking for descendants of Jay Dillon, the fiddler, and um, my eyes were adjusting the light. I could see Dee. She looked up to the ceiling, looked to the floor, sighed, and said, we got to go on the porch. And um, she's, did I mention she sells used cars? And seemed to be a rather perceptive judge of humans, shall I say, and took a rather jaundiced view of my appearance. So we go out on the porch, I explain who I am and why. She starts to talk and I realize, oh my God, she's, she knows stuff. I pulled out my phone, do you mind if I record this? I take terrible notes, but this goes no further. It's just for me to take notes. She looks at it like it was a dead rat and goes, okay and then talks for like an hour and a half straight telling me wonderful stories about her beloved grandfather, Jabe Dillon. After about an hour and a half, I realized I need to make some moves to get out of here. I barged in. I don't want to overstay my welcome. As I'm leaving, she mentions something about photos on the wall and records and promises to text me photographs with her phone of the photographs that evening. I leave all lit up. I now I have recordings from the classic records that my record collector friends have. I've got stories. Um, I could write about this. I'm, and I know some, you know, he's, we can claim him in Mississippi now. I get back to Jackson, ping, ping, ping. My phone goes, I start seeing the photos. One is a poster um, with Hank Williams at the top of the bill and Jabe Dillon at the bottom from 1950. Um, there were some beautiful shots, nice crisp photos there in the book, all of this, um, of Jabe Dillon with a band. There's a poster with him standing there, Jabe Dillon, world's best fiddler, promoting his 45 that came out in 71. Um, I'm going, now I really can tell the story. So I text her back and go, oh, this is great. Can I bring a scanner by? May I visit you later this week before I go back to New York? Yes, yes, yes. A couple of days later, I go over, set up, start scanning away. Um, very kindly lets me take her family photos out of the frame, scan them and put them back. And then I'm kind of wrapping up to go and she brings out the records and I'm going, yeah, yeah, the 78. She's got this 
70, she's got four 78s. I can see the aluminum coming out around the edge. These are custom one up copies of home recordings. That means there's eight tunes there that nobody knows about. Oh my God. And I have no way to play them. And there's handwritten notes on, on them, on some of them, but not all of them. And I recognize yet, yet again, we get uh, brown skinned girl and howling hounds for the third time. But since he never repeats, it's still pretty great. Every time he does it, the words are different. The spaces between the melodic bits are different. The energy is a little different with band, without band, with sound effects, without sound effects, and so on. Uh, I promise to come back somehow and dub the recordings, and, and I leave. Come back on another trip with appropriate equipment, copy that. And she mentions her, her cousin, who was also a granddaughter, is now back in town. So I go meet her. More photos, scans, stories. I'm there for hours. I'm wrapping up to leave there. And she and I said something about the records. She says, oh, yeah, records. She walks in her closet and comes out with a box of the 45s, two known copies on the planet. And she's got a box of them and hands me a little handful of them. Um, speechless. So that's all great. And then I'm corresponding with them later, making sure that, you know, that I've been accurate in my quotes. And she mentions that her brother Frank in Birmingham did an interview tape in the, in the 80s when Jabe was 80. An hour, what could that be? I drive to Birmingham on another trip and dub that. So now we have 10 complete tunes from Jabe Dylan, where we knew about three. They're posted with the family's permission at mississippifiddle.com, my website, um, because the family generously wants everyone to hear them and they should. And they are um, those three tunes, Howling Hounds, Memphis Mail, and Brown Skin Girl are show-stopping solo pieces. One of the best fiddlers in the state, folk fiddlers, uh, inspired variations, beautifully thought out. Hi, I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, and today I'm speaking with Harry Bollock and Tony Russell, authors of the new book, Fiddle Tunes from Mississippi, Commercial and Informal Recordings from 1920 to 2018. Well, well let's talk about the time that you spent uh, in 1975. So, Tony, you came to Mississippi and you were able to interview and talk to a number of musicians and then you published your findings in old time music magazine. So talk to me about your experience during that time period. What was immensely moving to me was how, how um, hospitable my, the people that I visited to talk to them about things that had happened 40 years before Uh, a word to this person with an unusual accent and uh, I have to say at the time, rather long hair. Um, so, uh, you know, it was quite a leap of faith, I think, in, in, in the case, in some of the <laughs> musicians' case, you know, to take this person uh, seriously. Um, but uh, but it, it was exhilarating um, because few of these musicians had been talked to at any length before um by people like me i mean um so it was uh you you got to, whereas again this is one of the reasons i came to mississippi was when i went to you know appalachia i would have been following in the steps of, of dozens of other people who had been there making recordings doing interviews uh, mapping the territory um but to a large extent in 1975 in old-time music terms mississippi was terra incognita you know it was here be monsters it was an, an old map you know, with 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 you know, nothing very definite on it, um, and uh, and it was all inspired, um, I, I should say, by one record. Um, I uh, I used to collect old seventy eights because back then it was the only way to hear some of this stuff. They weren't, you know, they hadn't been reissued. There was no Spotify, no YouTube, or anything like that. Uh, and one that I'd come across was Sullivan's Hollow by Freeney's Barn Dance Band, which is one of the most beautiful of all Mississippi tunes and still moves me tremendously to this day. And I must have heard it scores of times. Um, and Freeney is not that common a name. And I discovered there was actually a community called Freeney outside of Carthage, Mississippi. And and this is some years earlier than my trip um, and, and made contact with Carlton Freeney, the banjo player in the band, uh, tenor banjo player. and. Uh, that's what started me. He put, put me in touch with Alvis Massengale of the Newton County Hillbillies, who lived just another county or so away. And um, and what was so pleasing was how delighted um, men like Carlton and Alvis were to, to find somebody that still cared about this, more perhaps than their children and grandchildren did. Um, and I have still got a great pride framed an article from the Carthaginian newspaper saying um, Leak County sounds echo back from London, England, because I had sent <laughs> I had sent a cassette of, of the old Freenies band dance band recordings to Carlton, and he had been able to hear them for the first time, probably since soon after they were made in 1930. And this is 40 years later. When I think about, you know, particularly um, old time musicians gathering together and, and, and kind of having jam circles and, and learning from each other. My experience is more from uh, coming from a, a playing climber banjo. Um, I learned guitar uh, simply as a way to be able to follow the guitarist 
to know what chords they were playing and then play those on my banjo. Uh, fiddle, of course, is much more, you know, involved. So I'm just curious, one, if you could speak to, um, you know, these kind of sessions where, you know, we didn't bring, I try to explain this to people. We, we didn't learn the song ahead of time. We didn't bring sheet music that, you know, we're not even telling each other really the chords. You're just kind of saying, you know, this song's in the key of A, <laughs> in the key of D, and you're watching, or you already know the tune, um, et cetera. And so I, I think it's, at least for my generation, it's a, it's a very unique way of learning tunes uh, from each other. So I'm curious from a fiddler's perspective um, and from a historian's perspective, what is kind of the, what is the experience for a fiddler in those circumstances? And is there anything that stands out to you about those kinds of gatherings that you could share with someone listening? A A fiddler's job is pretty tough in that if you don't lead, there's no music. So it falls on you to play clearly remember the tunes, which is the heaviest part of that burden, particularly if you have thousands you're struggling with. Um, And to an outsider, these tunes all sound the same. To an insider who's trying to learn, they're all bafflingly different. And there's this mythology or line of thinking, which has an element of truth to it, that these are traditional tunes and they come from our fathers and then his father and so on back until you're in Europe. And there's an element of truth in that, but it's not like you're playing it note for note the same as it would have been hundreds of years ago. Every person that touches it changes it. It's a game of telephone, no matter how hard they're trying. And um, pre-digital, pre-recorders, last millennium, uh, millennium before actually, in the 1800s, raw memory or notation. And very few people were trained well enough in notation to write a tune down. So memory. So you get this game of telephone that gets rather extreme. And there's a brilliant quote that nails it from Charles T. Smith of Northern Mississippi up around Meridian. Um, He said back when he was learning, he would go to a dance, he would listen as hard as he could to that cool tune he wanted to remember. And then we go home and play it as best he could four or five hours later. And he discovered he had some gaps and he just had to make up stuff. Otherwise he couldn't play. Now, the whole state sounds like that to me when you compare it to the the body of tunes elsewhere. The, The body of music in Mississippi tends toward unique. There aren't that many standard tunes that are documented other than the top 10, probably. The way that I've, I've had it described to me, and I think fits well, is if you think about it as a body of tunes and they came down from yesteryear and they came down intact, it doesn't map well to reality. If you think of it as a dialect and a basket full of participles, a tune title, a lyric here, a floating verse there, a measure or two of a music that's a hook, and oh my God, where's it go? I forgot, let me make up something. I think you get to Mississippi music a lot quicker and what makes it distinctive by thinking about that. Compared to other states like North Carolina, which is the predominant revival style, Tommy Gerald being the 
the guru of the entire East Coast, the late Tommy Gerald, Pilot Mountain area. Um, in your studies and in your experience, is there anything that you might point to of, um, I guess, the background between some of the more well-known in commercial recordings and musicians and some of the more obscure or never really before heard? Uh, and I guess my question is, do you think that there are there things that stand out to you about um, how one might have taken off and the other may have never been heard? You know, is that is it access to transport? Is it transportation? Is it access to, you know, recording? I know that you could that's a bigger question that you could ask with, 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 with all types of music. But I was just curious if anything stood out to, to you guys about kind of the commercial and the informal and how one might get more, more well-known than the other. Well, one reason is that uh, Mississippi recording in the 20s was done at the end of the decade and, and into the early 30s, whereas in the southeast it had been preceded for four five or six years and by the time all these great mississippi bands were recording um records weren't selling so you get a a fine organization like freeney's barn dance band making half a dozen exquisite recordings um and they sell in the low hundreds they are you know fantastically <laughs> scarce collector's items that you know they had no chance of making an impact um the Leak County Revelers, who began a few years earlier, did, and you know they had one of the biggest uh, hits of the of their time with Wednesday Night Waltz in 1927-28. It was a huge record, sold a quarter of a million. But um, but mostly, no, these Mississippi guys were just found too far along towards the Depression, and that's why we don't know them nearly as well as we know re recordings by people like, say, Charlie Poole in North Carolina or Ernest Stoneman in Virginia, because they were recording in 1925, when records were selling a lot. So, I mean, that's one practical explanation. One could note that the two county LPs in 70s or 80s, 70s, they would have been when they came out. Yeah. Um, those records were really influential up here in New York, when I was learning fiddle, they were really popular and people learned tunes off them. I suspect more people heard Mississippi fiddle tunes in the 70s than in the 20s and 30s. Access to the recordings was, was probably greater. But we're still talking about thousands. I mean, a, a really big selling old-timey record be 2,000. Yeah. Um, so it's it remains an informal social music. Uh, there's only a hand, tiny handful of people playing and recording it in the state and outside the state in the revival uh, everybody I know playing knows and likes Mississippi tunes and knows some and they show up on their recordings but it's not a specialty for them uh, for me it's a passion and a focus just as the with some of the other states um, like my friend um, Tamsula in Pennsylvania or Tamsula he specializes in tunes from Pennsylvania and has done five or six CDs of it now. Um, there are people specializing in Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, um, and of course, the other, the other 
states like Kentucky and West Virginia, where you don't even have to specialize. That's just what they live and breathe. That's an active tradition. Um, we're, as Tony pointed out, the recordings came late, the audience was small. And I know from the fiddle contest um, documentation I've read, it was once a big time social thing in the state, but we're in more modest times. And Tony and I are publishing and pushing for the revival and the worldwide cultural domination of Mississippi <laughs> fiddle music. <laughs> that that may be a perfect way to end our our conversation. Um, Harry, tell us uh, tell us where they can find find the book, and tell us again about your website where they can find recordings um, that um, speak to a lot of the the music we've talked about today. Uh, both of the books are available at the University Press of Mississippi's website, and my website uh, MississippiFiddle.com. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.